A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point this week would be the entirety of Mistborn the Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Book clubs usually we meet in the evening, Crossland. This is a weekend, so you can have an afternoon book club if it's the weekend. It's not afternoon. <laughs> You're right, it's fucking the morning. Um, <laughs> it is 9 a.m., for you, yeah, at the very for least me, it's 10 for me, so it feels a little bit better. So, with that, today is our final episode discussing Mistborn, The Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson. We are going to chat about chapters 37 through the end. Mm. But, before we do that, PJ, what are we drinking on this fine morning? So, I threw together an elderflower sour. Ooh. What are you calling it? I don't know. <laughs> Elder Sour? No, I I don't have a name for it. Because I don't think it's that good. So okay. I don't want to name it. It's fine. It's it's okay. It's not anything that I'd... I might refine it and try to change it a little bit and make it better. But I don't think I'd approach this specific recipe again. It is three ounces of pinhook bourbon. An ounce of elderflower liqueur. An ounce and a half of lemon juice and like three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup all shaken and served with a lemon peel it's it's fine i think i don't know i don't know what i think of it maybe it's just because it's morning but it's a little bit too sweet the elderflower comes through a little bit too strong and the bourbon isn't strong enough to like cut through it all so i don't know maybe it's just a problem with proportions Hmm. That felt like a lot of bourbon. Yeah, I I initially started it with two ounces, and then my lemon was too big, mm. so I decided to scale up the recipe a little bit and went with three. So it's thrown together, and it didn't really have a basis for like how I built it. So sure, yep, that's where that came from. What are you following that up with? Following that up, I've got. Synaptic Cleft from Drecker Brewing Company it is a double IPA featuring Mature, Citra, and Belma hops. Three of those I am not familiar with. I've never heard of Belma hops. Neither have I. They use their, their house IPA yeast, Pale Two Row, Oats, Wheat, and Carafoam for their malt bill. I love how Drecker explicitly calls out their ingredients in all of this like it's something i wish more breweries did because it takes up a tiny like postage stamps size corner of their label and it it's so much street cred for all the beer nerds that are looking for their stuff like i know for a fact that i avoid amarillo hops like the plague and it's nothing against the quality of the beer itself i just don't like that hop varietal for the most part 
I know you've had a couple examples where I'm you gonna, like it. I'm going to shock you with some Amarillo whenever you visit, but I'm I'm excited. I'm really excited to be like shaken up by that by that opinion. But like I appreciate when the hop bill is put on the label, which a lot of breweries do, especially for New England IPAs. But just getting into the more of the nitty gritty is just so satisfying for me to see exactly what it's made of. So it's it's good. It's I wish it wasn't morning. So I could really <laughs> analyze it a little bit better. I've still got, I'm still like waiting for my palate to wake up a little bit. I feel like so. Kids might awake with some coffee of which I'm still drinking. Mm-hmm. So I feel you. But what are you drinking? I am having a cocktail that I am affectionately naming or maybe not so affectionately naming uh, Rashex Blood, which is really it's a spin on a whiskey sour i've been into working around egg whites and like trying to figure out how to best incorporate it into other things but this is just kind of a classic you know morning i was thinking about it i wanted berries i had fresh berries so what it is is it's two ounces of rye one ounce lemon juice in egg white three quarter ounce simple syrup mashed blackberries i put three blackberries and three raspberries inside of it and topped with angostura bitters after you do a dry shake and then i do a cold shake so dry shake for a little bit, throw in ice, do the cold shake, pour it in, and then topped with Angostura bitters. I think the most important part of this drink, though, is to make sure that whatever you're garnishing with, you're doing a lemon wedge, the berry combo, of which you already have extras, fucking do it, and you're spiking that with a metal cocktail rod. I think that's really important to get that metal spike in there for uh, for a little bit of Inquisitor action on top of the drink. But I... I really like it. I think it's really solid. It's just a spin on a uh, whiskey sour with a little bit more lemon juice than you would typically add and a little bit more rye. I normally prefer my whiskey sours with bourbon. Switching it up to rye is interesting. It's different. And I like the herbal notes that come through with the fruit a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the other part of that is that I do, after taking photos, immediately dip the lemon in. And then you start to get this really great, like, because the lemon is soaking in it, you get a more pervasive but not overly bitter lemon element to it which i really like so awesome feels like we're dipping into multiple powers here you know as i'm sitting here sipping this drink they're compounding um (laughs) i am following that up with again i think it was an episode or two ago flying machines roswell 1954 same vanilla porter i figured breakfast out breakfast porter if i'm gonna follow (laughs) something up i was just gonna do that (laughs) because i was like what the fuck am i drinking this morning so I was between between all of this and like a there were a couple of other options with uh, ginger beer and whatnot, but I decided on this. So, mm-hmm. yeah, straightforward, tasty. Go flying machine. Went there the other day, bought the bought a really crazy beer, but I didn't want to drink it on the show this morning. I will probably drink it next week with Lindsay. So perfect the show. That'll be the plan. Hmm. All right. Normally, folks, we would move into last week's predictions here. However, we are maybe making a change. We're going to see how it feels this week. But we are going to move predictions to the end of the episode after we discuss the content. So then we can pay off predictions based on the content as it's happened and exposed. Makes sense. I think so. I think that this makes more sense because then we aren't kind of awkwardly dancing around things that we want to talk about. Yeah, that makes total sense. Good point. Yeah. So... I think that this will let us kind of talk about it and then be like, yeah, when we get to the end, it's clear that like that happened. So cool. With that, let's move into chapter 37. We're only talking about three chapters this week and they're short ones. So 
There's a lot that happens, of course. We open up this week with Doxon's perspective. I think this is really unique here to jump in and communicates really important information to the reader, of course. Uh, the rebellion is going swimmingly. Luthadel is falling, of course, to the, the torches and the scars they're putting through. We're also introduced to Gorodel, of whom is one of the soldiers that was turned away by Vin instead of being killed like they might have uh, by Kelsier. And lending help to the ska cause which is fantastic to see that kind of thematic payoff to the to vin's motives but of course doxon is also presented with a nobleman prisoner that of ellen venture throughout the entire book i don't think i properly appreciated doxon he he felt like a half-baked side character for the most part and i think that's just on me I just didn't read into him enough. So it'll, it's going to be interesting to go back and reread the entire story because I, I think this section from his perspective opened that up and made me realize like how important of a character he really is. So he's truly the right hand. I mean, in, in a yeah. big way. And I, I didn't get so much half baked. I know that you're just kind of throwing out words here. Yeah, I'm, I'm that you believe yeah. that. Yeah, you're, you're fine. But I do totally understand what you're talking about with like, you don't quite pay enough attention to him. And then we hop into his perspective and all of a sudden it's like, dude is is the right hand. He has been the whole time. Why have I not been focusing on that? I think part of that is because we just didn't focus on him. We were talking about Kelsier and we we talked about the members of the crew of whom were Mistings and not Doxon ever. Mm-hmm. The, the only non-Misting crew member. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So he's just a thief, just a thief, just, just an ex plantation ska thief. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We did get into him. I think in like episode seven or eight, um, yeah, when we're right. confronted with a little bit of his past. Actually, we talked a lot about that and we cut it down for the episode. We talked almost two hours about that in particular, that particular interaction, but it wasn't so much a focus on docs and it was a focus on morals. Yeah. As far as Ellen goes, I don't know. It, it felt less like a prisoner and more like a mutually beneficial meeting. You know, like it, he was never, it never seemed like he was treated like a prisoner, even in the context of like he was being apprehended and brought to Doxon. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case. As as I think about Ellen in this moment, which is basically where we not where we ended last week, but where we ended Ellen's perspective last week with him basically resolving to turn himself in. So this is just an extension of that and kind of the, the payoff for that. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not a whole lot else. I mean, thematically or otherwise, it's really a plot beat. And it's good to see that the Scott react positively to this idea and, you know, that he is influential and that he's showing those signs of leadership as later he is made king. Yeah. But also within the scene, there's also Ham and his... I think that the little bit about Pewter and how he abuses weapons and how a Pewter arm might abuse weapons is kind of an interesting side note on top of this whole thing being, you know, if you've got this incredibly strong person who can swing something harder, of course, they're going to break the sword. Like most people know exactly how like certain things interact. If you think about a movie like The Last Duel, right, like they know what their weapons are going to do against armor or whatever, and they know that it's going to bounce off or the, the immediate impact. But if you leveled up your strength 10 times you're going to go through swords like nobody's business because all of a sudden your lever is so much stronger and the metal can't hold up to it i i mean i get it but why not then just get a fucking warhammer 
That's a great question. Ham I mean, should have a hammer. I think. Yeah. Or or a bat like a really beefy battle axe or something. I imagine now that I'm thinking about it, Ham having a hammer <laughs> is probably why <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't go with that because it would be such a meme alliteration. Um Yeah. It, yeah, but it makes sense, doesn't it? You're not going to go through it. Mm-hmm. And you're going to really like swords while well, swords can like benefit from strength more often than not they're finesse weapons he does like his his power is is strength not finesse yeah unless you're truly like two-handing it like a two-handed heavy sword but yeah even then it's still a finesse weapon versus like a battle axe or a hammer or even like a staff mm-hmm. yeah i mean just a fucking metal bar give ham unforged metal <laughs> just let him beat people with it like something that most people couldn't actually lift just yeah I that gets know. into the interesting nuance of pewter arms though because as ham had said part of being a pewter arm is knowing when to like activate it when to deactivate it versus just having it run all the time right so mm-hmm. like you would lift up something like a hammer and then once you get it to the apex where it's starting to come down and get that velocity, you'd probably turn off your pewter and just let the hammer follow through because you've already created the upward to go down. Or would you also you could follow through? It just depends. No, on I mean, the, the strength in a battle ham- like a battle hammer is accelerating through the fall. That like as sense. long as you, like if it's if it's all the same, as long as you can lift it, it's the same power coming down. Like, no, the, the power is acceleration. <laughs> That's fair. I'm going to cross the streams a little bit here just for a brief, brief interlude. Can you imagine if Thraxo was a pewter arm? Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it would be wild and so violent and so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and in her own way, I guess she is because she's a gold. So there's that, but not yeah. entirely the same. Anyway, I think that that's an interesting sidetrack to just be like, of course, pewter arms go through weapons quicker than mm-hmm. anyone else does because. Yeah, but that was my entire thought process. Yeah, that was my entire thought process during that scene was like, why are you using something that can get worn out like that? Like, why aren't you? Yeah. Get a hammer. Get yourself a fucking hammer. It's not like you had plenty of time. Renew had plenty of time to get you whatever you wanted. You had a year. It's fine. We cut back from there, of course, uh, from Doxon's perspective to Vin and get a really critical piece of information here from Carr about Reen, Carr the Inquisitor, about Reen, and how in the end, even while under extreme torture from the Inquisition, he didn't sell out Vin and lied to protect her. Yeah, that was a really great reveal. Yeah, it it does bring into question again. I think we talked about this earlier, the motivations behind Reen. And why he beat and abused Vin the way he did. Like, was this obstinance from giving up Vin entirely separate from that abuse? Or was it tied into this weird, twisted, way over the top, like, reasoning for, like, tough love almost? Kind of keeping her safe through forcing her to be independent. I believe you're entirely correct with that. I think that that is the right way to read this is that it is a combination. I mean, I think what you're referencing when we talked about it earlier is in earlier episodes, we'd kind of been discussing Reen over time. And I think that this adds that final, it's kind of a nail in the coffin where it says that Reen was a child parenting a kid as best as he could as a 
older, barely older brother to try to take care of her in a brutal world and did a fucking bad job for the most part. I guess at that point, were they, were they full siblings? Like half siblings. They were half siblings. Okay. Yep. Vin's sister was a full sibling. Okay. That gives even more interesting implications later. I have, I have suspicions of Vin's mother. And I'm curious if Reen has some ferrochemical powers and hmm. knows of Vin's. Like, he, he, he obviously knows of Vin's father. Does he know that Vin is a mistborn ahead of time or has the potential to become a, a misting of some sort ahead of time? I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the fun, the fun circles of the story is some of the historical speculation that can happen here especially in in Mm -hmm. vin's history in this first book we still don't know vin's snapping point do we no we do not know when vin snapped did she ever mention i I feel like i've asked this before did she ever mention using luck with reen i think we specifically tried to address that question in a previous episode and i do not believe that it was ever exposed that she used luck with reen okay yeah i think that rings a bell i don't know yeah Oh, I want more, man. Well, the good news is we've got two more books. We've got and s- six more books. Well, yeah. Yep. We've got two more books in this, this arc. Correct. Yeah. And then we've got two short stories and well, we've got one short story for this arc and then we've got one short story for the next arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've got or the era. But yeah, era arc. It, it's the same, really, if you think about it that way. They're just that's how Sanderson himself has defined it. So it's going to be I, I'm glad that you've got this this interesting read on Reen, right? And this sort of brother sister relationship, because I think it is really important to the, the base of the story. Yeah. Sazed, of course, is abducted, beaten to hell, stripped naked, stripped of all of his external metal mines, captured by the Inquisitors as well, and thrown into the same cell as Vin, tied his hands together with an iron... I think it's iron. I think they say it's iron. But with a ring clasping him together so that he wouldn't, in theory, be able to move, chained to the ground. And he uses his miraculous powers of Ferrochemy to bust them out, learning a trick from Vin ingesting his metal in order to store that strength power to break through and amplify that moment of weakness. This is so cool. Like, it's a, it's a cool moment. Yeah, it is. I was kind of hoping swallowing the metal would be a Vin-centric reveal of something going forward. I don't know. I think it still is. I think it still is to a certain extent. But even... I alluded to it already. That I think Vin is also a ferrochemist. And I think we're led to believe that a little bit towards the end of the book. But this is still a very satisfying reveal of or a satisfying callback to something that happened i don't know i don't know what else to say about that without kind of deep diving into vin which i i'm like i know we'll do later so we are definitely going to do that before the end of the episode so yeah Yeah. it's so i do have to say though this is something that i railed against a little bit in in red rising when something like this happened, why are two very plot centric, important characters put into the same jail cell without any sort of over like, shit's going to happen? I want to talk a little bit about your meta read here. 
in Red Rising, I think it makes a lot of sense that that is an incorrect thing to do because all of Earth's history, as we know it, exists inside of the Red Rising universe. Vague spoilers, I guess. And so in the moment in which that happens, hundreds and thousands of movies have been created of which people like this is a central plot point. This book, Mistborn, exists instead of the Red Rising universe, technically. So, like, they should fucking know better <laughs> based on all of all of the potential media and like data points and everything else. Like there's no in Red Rising. I agree with you here. We've got no basis for understanding. Yeah. So I, I can at the very least forgive it more here in a fantasy setting in which, you know, we're recognizing it from our perspective of it being, you know, an error. But how often it, the Lord Ruler has done such a good job of keeping the terrorists down, exterminating them, trying to remove the bloodlines as much as possible and kill off ferrochemists in general that they don't know to even anticipate this. He's also he's probably hiding that information from his inquisitors to begin with. So they don't even. Yeah, that's they fair. Don't have a read on it either. The other the other thing that that question brought like brings up ferrochemists are or not ferrochemists, terrorismen in general. Mm-hmm. are eunuchs they're made eunuchs by the lord they're, ruler exactly not all of them are why are they not just purged i th- we can get into this near near to the end but once we get the reveal that rashek is the lord ruler he still he refuses okay. to kill his own people because he believes that they're the dominant people right okay that's a very reasonable answer and that's why i think he also allows terrorist society to still exist but and breeds terrorist people, but ultimately neuters many of the men. Yeah. Yep. Which is a wild genetic <laughs> eugenics experience to discuss. Ooh, man, dude, <laughs> Lord ruler do some nasty shit to his own people. Yeah. 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 Yep. It's, it's safe to say, I think based on that similar assumption, and we'll talk more about this later, but that the scar are probably Kaleniumites and the rest of the society of Scadriel. So they're likely, you know, the society that felt oppressive and the empire that felt oppressive to Rashek. And he basically flipped the script on them. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. Hmm. Anyway, let's, isn't that an interesting side note? Like there's so much that's revealed in the moment where Rashek is known to be the Lord ruler. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a lot about that. So, yeah. Of course, the ferrochemical powers, too, are super cool. And seeing that on display, physically him deteriorating and then, you know, coming to life is interesting because I think it also sets up what happens with the Lord Ruler a little bit later when he kind of deflates and inflates. So there's a moment here when they're escaping where Kelsier's final words echo in Vin's ears. You still have some things to learn about friendship, Vin. And she turns around and saves Sazed from his potential fate at the hands of the guards, the obligators, and also manages to dispatch them confidently without her medals, jumping and leaping as though she were an Alamancer without the Alamantic abilities. And I really enjoy this moment of badassery from Vin because I think it shows that she's refined herself as that thief in the beginning that we saw into an assassin even yeah. without medals yeah badassery is <laughs> i think an apt description of what's going on here there's a quote in this section that i want to highlight mm-hmm. at least i tried at least i didn't abandon him and i think that is the perfect culmination of this journey that we've been on with vin and her her personal 
growth throughout the entire thing. We've talked a lot about growth and I think mm-hmm. that's something that's kind of strived for in, in, in really any story is the growth of the characters that you're experiencing. But this was a very understandable, tangible, empathy evoking growth arc for Vin. Yeah, in, entirely. I think another interesting point to like tag into this a little bit is that that line in particular harkens back to her relationship with Ulef right at the beginning. The the young boy that she was a well, he's not really, you know, he's of a similar age, but the boy that she was a friend with in Cayman's crew. This is kind of that moment where it's it's her coming full circle on this idea of friendship. And I think that we do literally say like here is the beginning. Here is the end. Look, Vin's changed in this kind of way here. And mm-hmm. I think it's great. I think it's an important character moment. Yeah. God, I haven't thought about Ulef basically at all <laughs> since the beginning. Yeah, of the since book. he died by the Inquisitor's hands. So, yeah. Yeah. Did I just have to search his name because I forgot it? Absolutely, I did. Because <laughs> I remember mentioning it last episode and not saying it. So here I am <laughs> pulling it out of my ass. Yeah, man. Fuck. Stabbing the dudes with the knife. It's it's so good. So good. Of course, we have to round out this chapter with kind of the final beat here. Ellen shows up and needs saving once again as they are surrounded by troops. Vin dispatches these obligators, these members of the steel ministry, this time fueled by Alamancy as she recognizes her clothes among uh, a bundle in the side, tearing into the opponents and tearing them apart. Kind of easy peasy. And even like makes this uh, reference to Kelsey being like, oh, yeah, this is kind of addicting as you, you know, kind of feel the push and pull. And she's clearly imitating his style in a big way here, as though she learned it from that moment of, of seeing that violence. But the more important part here is the moment that follows that, of course, the moment where Vin and Ellen share their first, I want to say, real interaction between the two of them without the lies and the guises of personality. And it's just a wonderful moment here for our girl. Yeah, our girl. Our girl. I realize that we say our boy all the time, but like yeah. Vince, our girl. So Absolutely. It's a nice, cute moment between them that comes out of this, but something that comes up quite a bit. And so this is something that's been brought up before from Doxon and like with uh with spook in the in the area talking about modesty i guess and the fact that she's not wearing clothes for the most part like she's in her undergarments throughout this entire scene and it's weird how much focus there is on how uncomfortable that makes basically everybody in the series and it's really odd like i could see it from ellen being like this very properly brought up noble highborn guy but it's reflected in the ska populace as well. And it doesn't, that modesty doesn't make sense to me in this context. I think I have a reasonable reason why. Okay. Vin is a 16, almost 17 year old. Okay. Given we're putting our parameters from our society on this society at that point. So I don't think that's necessarily completely fair. Everine, but I do think that that is at least a part of it. Well, However, it's Ellen it's always in the context. That. It's in the context of distraction. Yeah, that feels like a very teen boy response almost. Yeah, 
Yeah, I guess indecency. I guess both people talking was it it was Doxin though Doxin, that brought it up. Yeah. Right. Not previously. It, yeah. But I guess it was for for Spook's sake, I guess. I think, I, I think he references that. I think he talks about that. Elland is like I said, he's proper proper brought up highborn guy, so that makes sense to me. But it feels like it, it just feels like so much so much is put on this. And like it, it's explicitly referenced twice now. I can't help but think that that's intentional and will be something more than just that's just how it is going forward. I think that that's meant to be intentional here because there's still, you know, even if we think about the relationship and the the relationship between Vin and Ellen, they're still in the courtship phase. You know, they're still kind of in that part of the relationship. So, like, that's in a very Christian-centric way. I think that's that's considered what's appropriate. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. The fact that this was brought up made me more think about the last scene that it was brought up, which was yeah. after pewter dragging. Or no, no, no. After getting saved by Sazed. Sazed, yeah. Sazed. Wow, how it's did fine. I fuck that You up? could say um, Sazed. Some people do say it's Sazed. Some people say... There's another one. There's another one in there that's really awful that I don't agree with. But after being said it that way, I've invited to be a guest on our show. So okay. <laughs> it's fine. we'll see how that goes. Anyway, after he was brought in, she was like undergarment clad. Basically. And like, that's what people focused on. Yeah, I think that's like a standard thing. Like a, it's a individual standards. It does feel odd. I don't think we're getting to the romantic feet here. No, we're not. We're not. But it's it just feels odd. It feels off. It feels weird. And I don't. Well, I think it's because it feels improper to Ellen, probably uh, because of the way that he's been raised and everything else. And he is, as we learn from kind of Straff's example, he's more of a he is truly, I think, like a pinnacle nobleman in the way that they were probably supposed not supposed to be something that they should aspire to be like. Because I think Straff is ultimately what the Lord Ruler wanted because he's expecting turnover instead of these things. So I think Straff is more of the design of the Lord Ruler. But Elland has the sort of proprietary propriety to him, I should say. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what we're experiencing here. Yeah, that's fair. But the emotionality of the moment is fantastic. It's Elland's really, or not Elland, it's Vin really like breaking down and being like this is what i want this is what i wanted i'm so glad that i have this right now and being very Mm -hmm. honest and we go from that breakup moment that we had forever ago to the scene where kelsier dies and ellen is there trying to save her even though she's not anywhere near where he is and kelsier actually ends up saving him to here now finally reunited right yeah my heart my heart my heart with that, we move into... Do you have anything else on this chapter? Any other thoughts? I don't think so. Okay. I, that I dug into, I don't know, they, I mean, it's not female modesty <laughs> a little bit too yeah. much, maybe. That's fair. I don't think it was unreasonable, though, especially given the parameters of the universe we're talking about. Like, that's... I think that's mm-hmm. an interesting thing to tackle, especially given... So, we go to chapter 38... Starting on page 618, such are my fears as I scribble with an ice-crusted pen on the eve before the world is reborn. Rashik watches, hating me. The cavern lies above, pulsing. My fingers quiver, not from the cold. Tomorrow, it will end. 
this is such a good final chapter right for the the book and we've we've read this previously this yeah. feels it it has that sort of given the context that we get inside of this chapter it's read entirely differently now that we're at the end because reshek watching is really him plotting to take what will eventually be the 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 well of ascension from our guy who's been writing this logbook. We don't have his name yet. Our boy, uh, our boy, <laughs> our boy, that guy, our boy, the hero of ages. Well, maybe, maybe Cleniite. Yeah, Cleniumite. But yeah, it's it's interesting because I think that I felt like I had to sneeze. This reads both as a wonderful final prologue to the what's going to happen in the logbook as well as this kind of this is the last chapter culminating moment for the regular story as well so we get this kind of this is the end moment from this prologue as well yeah so so good there's a couple things that come to mind when reading this chunk one of which is like i want to know who this guy is and what what the fuck happens in the end but the other thing that I'm thinking about here is why is like why has this logbook been kept by Rashik, the Lord Ruler? Like why would he keep this? It doesn't track for me. I think the reason that he ultimately decides to keep it is because it actually gives his story is the Lord Ruler, a heroic route for everyone to like cheer and rah rah for, like we were as we were reading the story, right? Like this seems like a path to becoming a hero, when in reality, Rashek, the actual, no one knows that his name is Rashek. He's just known as the Lord Ruler, right? So the Lord Ruler is believed to be this other person that's inside of the logbook. So he's just perpetuating that fake belief, and he uses it as this holy text to uphold himself. As a way of guising himself and like, I don't know, presenting a better face or front. Wouldn't it just be easier to not not have the story from before? Potentially, but I think it's such a good the reason that I would say that he would choose to keep it as a it's a remembrance of what happened for him because he actually knows what's going on for real inside of that logbook. And then B, I feel like it it. What else is he going to do? Is he, I guess he could write his own sacred holy text, but is a falsified text going to be as pure as this? I feel like it's a I, it's a matter of convenience to some degree for him, but but the text is suppressed by everybody to begin with, other than whoever has access to that room, right? Which are the inquisitors. So I think it's his way of keeping them in line for the holy okay. journey, the holy and, and the obligators, and like Tividian, and so like the Steel Ministry is really the people who would you know kind of worship at this altar okay fair i can see that yeah it's not as though everyone knows this story everyone else kind of knows a verbal version of the story as we find out like vin really knows it's like oh the lord ruler saved us from the deepness and that's just kind of the general understanding there's nothing else there mm-hmm. uh, as it's kind of distilled itself over a thousand years so yeah i understand and i get the kind of skepticism of sorts but Shepticism. It sounded like someone just like knocked off a railing off of my stairs. Like it was super loud on my end. Did you hear that? I heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It sounded really like, whoa, what happened? Vin goes from this last scene that we saw in into launching into the air among the spires of Kritikshaw. And it paints, I think, my favorite image of the whole book. 
the torches are kind of like fireflies. They're not described as fireflies. They're phosphorescent bugs or insects, I think is how he describes them. But like fireflies lighting up the night and the morning coming just over the horizon as she's among all of these spires in the air. And you get the sense of finally that yellow sun kind of returning versus the red. And you get this interesting color palette and picture. And the whole thing feels incredible, cinematic, a little bit emotional, right before the moment of conflict that is really going to kick us into the shit of things. It's a really nice calm before the storm. I think that's a great way to describe it. Calm before the storm. This is something that's hard to describe, but bringing the conversation into the term cinematic, the way Brandon Sanderson writes, the way he writes this basically adds an interstitial transition. I guess that's, those are synonymous with each other, but it's, these interstitial cinematic moments that you see in film or in TV shows or in visual stories being told in general that I feel like are not often portrayed in, in text like this backed up view of the, of the scene kind of really bringing the next bit of scenery into focus. I don't know. It makes me really, appreciative of the way he writes it and looking forward to any sort of adaptation that could come out of that, because I feel like it could be very closely tied to the book, even in those aspects. Yes, I do agree. I do quite agree. I think that what's so interesting about the way that Brandon writes something like this is obviously, like you said, the fixation on the cinematic, right? This is, this is abnormal for the medium. And I could not, I could not agree more. I think that some people nail this and others, other folks, you know, they're writing. It's, it's, it's a novel. Like treat, treat your medium as you want to treat it or as it should be treated. But often some of these incorporations you can only get away with if you have very specific set of rules. And Brandon has built rules in which we can see our protagonist propel herself through the air and then see a big wide open shot. In another, like, in a science fiction series, you might be able to see, like, the bow of a spaceship and get, like, a big picture there. Cool. That's a great cinematic moment. In another fantasy series, you're probably seeing most everything from the ground unless you hop up to, like, I don't know, an eagle's perspective, for instance, that could have saved the day. That would have been, like, another good way of, like, showing a big wide pan shot. But often, you don't have a moment in which your protagonist gets to propel you into that giant, massive framing shot. And it's typically left to whoever's adapting it to create those moments and to recognize mm-hmm. when they could happen. And I think that's one of the, the benefits here is that this novel feels eminently adaptable, be it a movie, be it a, a miniseries. I imagine this is like a three episode miniseries. So two, two and a half hour movie, I guess. We imagine um, everything as miniseries, Crossland. <laughs> I think imagining things as miniseries is mostly the right way to go when you're talking about adapting, except mm-hmm. for maybe The Warehouse, because that is almost a perfect movie. Um, but yeah. needless to say, well, you could do it as a miniseries, though. The more that I think about it, you could like it's it's almost like devs, right? Like there's there's anyway. Don't need to talk about it. Coming up soon. <laughs> check out our short pour episode on our short pour podcast, spinoff podcast, Words and Whiskey Short Pour, where we talk to Rob Hart, author of The Warehouse and author, author of The Paradox Hotel, which is coming out soon, both of which have been optioned for adaptation. So, yeah, everything he's written has been optioned. 
everything. He's a hundred percent. Has it been everything? Yeah, the Ash McKenna series, uh, yeah. as well as the James Patterson novel that he did, co-did with James Patterson. But yeah. that's I'm he's such a fun person to talk to too. He's so. great. He's a great writer too. A little bit of a plug there for our our side. Yeah, check it out. Check it uh, out if you haven't. Podcast. You'll love it. There's so much joy coming there soon. But yeah, this this scene is is a great, a fantastic moment, especially as you could imagine it being portrayed. Like this is. You only get this if you're able to properly set it up. Like, you can't cheat and cut to this. You know? Like, that's... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's the thing. You can imagine... You don't get... This is a great comparison. You don't get the shot in the Shining movie of, like, approaching the hotel over the lake nearly as clearly as you do in the movie when you get the camera that kind of zooms over and rides the helicopter down to the hotel. You don't get that in the book. You do in the movie. And so this is an example of the only reason that you can get that in the book is because we have the system in place for you to get it. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So it's perfect. The context to deliver it. So we start off the storm, as we've called it, in Carr's perspective, where he's receiving a promotion to be in charge of the steel ministry as a whole. The benefit here, of course, of being dipped into Carr's perspective for a page and a half is a ton of information about how inquisitors work. What did you think about our dip into his perspective? I think the biggest thing to talk about is something that we talked about, I think, last week Mm -hmm. in they're able to see the iron in people's blood and within people and within basically everything. Because yeah. we've talked about how Vin early on, before she realized that she was a misborn or realized what Alamancy was, received like trace metals from the things that she was consuming. And they're able to see that, which makes total sense. But also from Carr's perspective, we realize that these Inquisitors are not mindless shells of people, but mm-hmm. in fact, they ha- they're they capable and have intelligence and freedom of choice, which I don't know. I figured that was the case, but I could have seen it and I could have believed that they were more robotic than what they are. So it was cool to, to get confirmation from that. I don't want to draw an immediate comparison here necessarily, but do you remember when we read Breach Peace by Daniel Green? This reminds me, like the Inquisitors in general remind me of the Anointed. Yeah. So they've got yeah. very similar. But I question, I still, we don't have the answer yet because we've only read, you know, the first novella. But in the case of the Anointed, you question whether or not they're in charge or if something else is in charge, which is interesting. Right. Versus here, yeah. it seems as though they have their own authority. Or at the very least, they're they're conscious they have free will yeah right yeah yeah exactly exactly i don't know why i couldn't think of that word Just all now. good it's because it's early did you have coffee yeah. this morning i did but only half a pot i usually have a pot and a half are you kidding well okay not a pot like not in like the traditional sense of a, a pot of coffee you've got a smaller we, like four no cup. We, it's a it's a french press Oh, okay. So it's Kaylin and I split a French press right away, and then I make another one for myself afterwards. Got it. Got it. I do a pour over, and pour over extracts more of the caffeine. So I do one fucking cup, and I'm shaking. More often than not, I've got like I've got like a third of my cup left at the bottom, and so I'm like sipping on that dregs all day, which is good. It tastes good because it's good coffee. But anyway, yeah. 
I feel you. I understand. I just took yep. a took a little bit of that to. <laughs> um, I hope that Mike captured that, but I didn't. Yeah, I, I didn't hear it, so it probably did. Yeah, Audacity but, catches more things than Discord does, unfortunately. Unfortunately, <laughs> but. Including all the fucking time I click my fucking mouth. I'm sorry, folks. I'm editing it all the time. Uh, we so we're we're inside of Car's perspective. I really I really like that you keyed into the idea of being able to see blood and stuff like that earlier. The thing is, though, that we we know and we've learned that Vin can't, for instance. Vin's unable to. The Lord Ruler doesn't appear to be able to. So there's something different going on with Inquisitors, right? Like this, and why? I guess is kind of the question. Like why do they have this? sort of i don't say it's not prescient why did they have this other sense built in baked in yeah the lord ruler later uses the term not imbued but uh, i think it is imbued actually is it imbued i think it is it's something at least very similar which to me would mean that it's so much more intrinsic endowed 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 fabrications specifically yes so we also don't know that the Lord Ruler can't. And I got the impression that he could affect it, like affect internal metals based on the fact that he dislodges Vin's earring. Right. He can infect internal metals, as we learn, because she feels like her guts are even being pushed on with the metals inside of them. I'm saying, well, okay, maybe that does mean that he's seeing iron lines. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't know. That wasn't declared either way, but, 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 but I think there's something to the spikes. Okay. And the spikes, I believe are explicitly made of, me- of iron. The eye spikes. Yeah. I think that's. Yeah. Yeah. So iron, iron seeking iron makes sense to me. Man seeking woman. Be- yep. Similar. Yep. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Bullshit. Anyway. Those iron eyes are trying to mate with the blood. (laughs) (laughs) Not unrealistic. So, I don't know. I could see that being a reason for heightened senses in that respect. Okay. Interesting. I fucking hate that that's became my, like, catchphrase. Ever since I got called out, I've been, like, editing out every time I say fucking interesting. Um, (laughs) You say (laughs) it? Reducing the number. All the fucking time, man. I know, I know, I know, I know. It's like Gambit all over again, but different because it's a response. So I say it like a filler term. I think that is a a good read, though. I think that's a a fun perspective. And it's a great question to carry into the future. So we get, we switch from perspectives. Actually, we see within his perspective, a dazzling display of broken glass as as it's thrown across the ground, as Vin breaks through and shoots through with a rush of coins the window here in critic shaw and busts into the room ready to fucking go it's so cool but she immediately charges the lord ruler so we switch from her perspective his perspective to her perspective charging the lord ruler burning the 11th metal giving what you thought a try trying to stab that visage of the lord ruler in the past of course this doesn't work and she's seized by car once again what do you think this whole thing is so cool it would have been so fucking cool if that yeah. had worked. I was convinced. I was mm-hmm. absolutely convinced that that would have been the app, like the the thing that would do it. She did talk about how he was incorporeal. He, he she just passed through him, unlike 
her own visage with gold, which I don't know. That's making my brain go like, what the fuck is happening there? Because that was dismissed by and entirely written off, uh, dismissed by, I think encapsulates it by Kelsier saying like, no, it's just a, it's just a visage, but she's able to feel it. And she remarks that it's different here. So there's something, there's something to it. And I don't know what it is yet, but I want to know. And I think we'll figure out in the future. But right. Yeah. That was something we didn't really focus on that much in the past was because I'm pretty sure she mentioned it to Kelsier and he like brushed it aside. Right. The 11th metal or interacting with the gold. shadow gold, gold interacting. Yeah. Kelsier almost entirely had brushed aside gold. And so Vin was she, she her, mentioned yeah. that she could like, it felt physical and he mm-hmm. dismissed it. Yes. I believe I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. No, she totally did. He dismissed it entirely for her. So that definitely mm-hmm. tracks. Yeah. yeah. But man, I was so convinced that that would have been the, I was so ready for it to be basically low pan. You were so so excited for that to actually be the way that it went. And uh, Mm -hmm. it was was not quite that way. That makes sense. But then a second Inquisitor saves Vin, yanks out Carr's central spike out of his back, rendering him to just a pile of bones and flesh on the floor and metal, I guess. This Inquisitor, Marsh, had taken out all of the other Inquisitors by yanking those same spikes, leaving the Lord Ruler to fend for himself as he calls for assistance. He jumps to the Lord Ruler, tears open the back of his shirt, clearly assuming the same spike would be there, and it isn't. Lots to think about here. First and foremost is, did we ever actually see Marsh's body, or was it like this Marshish body that was all mangled and fucked with so it was we were led to believe by kelsier in the reaction that it was marsh because that was the only thing that made sense however it was painted that there was so much blood in the room that it was almost unbelievable the amount of blood that was everywhere so that it came from a single body so it's a very subtle thing to like pick up on or try to knock into to understand what was going on but Kelsier also believed that and wasn't given that much time, like maybe two or three minutes inside of the room as a whole before they had to run because they're afraid of being hunted and killed mm-hmm. inside that room. Yeah. I think that the, the moral there is that we didn't really know, but the assumption was that it was Marsh and that there were no further communications. And especially given the note that Marsh left, it felt as though this was the end of Marsh. Right. The conflict with the Lord Ruler gave me vibes of like Dark Souls. Mm. And how you really have to figure out kind of by trial and error what the pattern is and where the weaknesses are. And once you do that, you can kind of, you can go through the fights without that much issue, but it's the, it's the puzzle aspect of like, what are the weaknesses and what are the immunities? That's a great way of putting it. This is a boss fight in a lot of ways. You know, there's there's an interesting original review that I'd read from back in the day when this came out. I didn't read it. I read a review that was released right when this book came out. Right. And one of the complaints is that it felt like a video game inside that review. But I think that's actually a strength in a a big way. I think that that gives it a strict rule set. So happy if the adaptation of this story was a video game instead of a, a movie or TV show. I would yeah. be 
so happy with that because I think it could be done really well, not only because of the way that it's written, but the way that video games have gone in the past generation of, uh, of like gaming consoles yeah. and of game releases. Like they're, they're so much more cinematic than they used to be. And I think it could do it justice. It could do the entire story justice being a triple A video game. Yeah. I think I don't disagree with you at all. I think that what's really interesting as well here is that. So part of the story needs to be kept on rails, right? In order to make sure that we hit like things like soothing and kind of those moments, because you can't just soothe at any, you know, there's, there's a weird part of this where it's like, You'd have to code so many rules into a video game that it would be hard to create enough of a system. However, you can also see things like The Witcher and Batman, for instance, the Arkham series, being a good example of what you could do with something like the Iron and Steel lines that show up, right? Like the blue lines to everything. Mm-hmm. And then you can, you can move from there and see like the things that you can push and pull off of. So you could like jump to and then jump from. Very reminiscent of what I imagine, actually I've played it, but like how Spider-Man would work, except for I imagine with a controller in my hand, left to I pull and then right to I push. And whatever metal I'm targeting is like the pull and then you get to it and then you push off of it. And there's like there's just so many interesting components there that I agree with you. I think that a video game would be fun, but I think Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't tell Vin's story. I think that's true. That would be the most important thing, because I while this story is incredible, a lot of this could be fixed by using different elementic powers at different times, <laughs> mm-hmm. potentially. Part of that's because of her lack of understanding and the way that she kind of unlocks them over the course of the story. But yeah, I would say, or I will say, if we were to follow the thread of a video game, it would make such a cool asymmetric multiplayer oh, yeah. experience. Asymmetric I think in in video games is a little bit different in that it's like different different rules for each side. This would be the same yes. rule. It'd be more like an Overwatch kind of style or a, a MOBA style. Like a, of okay, like a hero style. Yeah, everybody chooses a different Alamancer, like, and you create a team based on or Farrakemi five five mistings. Yeah, and Mistborn aren't included i think that could be a fun it could be a fun multi multiplayer be fun experience. i like that idea as like a moba or an overwatch like that makes sense yeah. yeah yeah but you're right the story itself you're right that would that would have to be more cinematic that'd have to be more it would have implications i guess is the thing like mm-hmm. as you unlock certain things why it wouldn't go slightly differently so but i i think in general like great counter example Use Mistborn to tell Kelsier's story of like becoming an Alamancer. Yeah. There you go. Done. It's a great way. Great story to tell. So, oh man, so cool. It's such a cool, it's such a cool system. And I love that you brought up boss fights in Dark Souls because that is kind of what they feel like. They feel like they've found a rule set and so they're obeying the rule set. And it turns out that the Lord Ruler doesn't follow that. But he does. Yes. It's, yeah. it's just. They made the wrong assumption. Clever. Yeah. yeah yeah that's like that's the entire thing that i appreciate about a brandon sanderson and the way that he writes this is that it explicitly follows the rule set i love a brandon sanderson for following i love i love a brandon it was in uh as as in like not a but 
UH. Uh, no, I know. But that's what I love about him and the way that he writes in that everything is so explicitly rooted in the rules. And even when we're misled by the rules in that some of the things that Kelsier pointed out, like you can't affect things that are embedded in your skin. They're wrong, but they're wrong for a reason in, in that they're just not strong enough. And nobody that has come before has been strong enough to exploit that inconsistency in the rule set that the scop or the mistings put forward. Yeah. Right. And it's just that what, what does, what does the strength even mean here? Right. Like how, how is he stronger? How do we define that? What's, what's his difference? Is he closer to Alan Nancy somehow? And that like, what does that mean is, mm-hmm. is the hard part here. Right. The Lord Ruler, as we're talking about, is overwhelmingly powerful, able to completely and totally exceed everything Vin can do, storming across the room, throwing her around like a rag doll. His skin is pierced with rings, of which we know can't be pulled on generally, but she's pushed so hard that even her earring rips from her ear and her metals roil in her stomach, pushing her back. This is, yeah. as we're talking about, like a changing of the rules. Not a changing, but a shifting. Yeah. it's a It's a realization, and she brings up here... Uh, maybe it's not here, but she brings up at some point how she's astonished by what can happen and how it feels against the rules. But at the same time, Kelsier pointed out that nobody could use alamancy through through a copper cloud. And that was wrong. And she was able to pierce it with bronze. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, it, it's insanely powerful already. And we've established that the... Or rather, the Lord Ruler we know is insanely powerful, and the Inquisitors, through Carr's perspective, we've understood that they can see the lines from people's blood, or from people and their inherent metal within them. It's not a stretch to assume that the Lord Ruler can affect that even harder. So, it, I, it was it was just a fun unraveling reveal of what's going on. Yeah, it it's a really it's a contentious thing I think that could have been done a lot more poorly than it was actually executed, right? Because I think a part of the part of the potential here is to completely flop this reveal, right? And to make it feel really cheap. Like the fact that someone is breaking the rule system can feel really cheap, but the fact that it's been kind of set up and prolonged this whole time to some degree by Vin's capability and abilities is it helped add a layer of depth to that experience, to that understanding, because Vin seems to also be outside of the rules a little bit. So, you know, something that could it it could have felt it could have felt real bad. Like this could have been a real bad moment if everything weren't so damn consistent. The Lord Ruler, as we've been discussing, kind of has this real sense of menace about him when he talks about his history of putting down rebellion and his state of godhood. It's really something, I think, to behold in this moment and in, in really kind of exposing his character, of course, as we find out. I, I really love this a little bit. He goes over to Marsh and says that he's made him dominant and that he's given him these powers. And then it all clicks in place for Vin that the Lord Ruler is Rashek, not the man from the journal, the Pac-Man of whom was described in the journal. He killed the hero and took his place. And this is a secret that I really, 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 really want your reaction on holistically and 
the way that that impacts you know you and your thoughts of the story so first and foremost he mentions that he's been beheaded yeah and he's lived through it like that's fucking crazy uh he completely glances over that or at least vin does this entire reveal caught me off guard and i don't know if there are signs beforehand that would point to it in hindsight so i'm excited to like read through that and figure it out and like look at all of those logbooks from a different perspective but yeah it 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 really threw me off i'm like oh shit that it makes sense it really makes sense but at the same time god was i not expecting it i did make an official prediction i believe i believe it was an official prediction that the man writing the logbooks at the beginning of every chapter was the lord ruler and that is no longer true so I think I have to drink for that, huh? I think you do. I think that was very early on before we started doing the official tracking like we were doing. So I do think mm-hmm. you owe me a drink. Yeah. I've been waiting for this for a long time. Yeah, that was. I, uh, think, I think this is actually one of those. That I think I you drink about. for it. I did drink. So you I drink for too. it. I didn't want to ruin it. Yeah, I've got to. I've got to compensate. Yeah. I agree. All right. All right. There you go. So regardless. This is so fucking cool. This reveal that it's Rashek is massive and such a change because it completely shifts our perspective on the logbook. We've been talking about this being the Lord Ruler and the way that that influenced his ruling style. And we, we said that there's this strange dissonance that the Well of Ascension must have changed this man when in reality he never made it. Yeah. Did you did you like follow the same threads I did? Your first oh, time reading yeah. it? I did not okay. pick up okay. that it was okay. a different person. I was like, Rashek's weird, but like, I don't know. <laughs> it makes sense that now you're like constantly asking me about Rashek mm-hmm. <laughs> through the whole fucking story. I'm like, he's fine. Whatever. Like, he's an antagonist to a certain extent to this Lord Ruler character that we're talking about. Fucking wild. Right? It is absolutely buck wild <laughs> fucking insane it was a really good reveal like that was a really like textbook reveal yeah i don't know yeah it was it's a slap in the face in a big way and it's especially because it's been this story paralleling our story story within a story even it is it feels good it hurts at the same time <laughs> <laughs> yep yep uh, fuck fuck yeah but there it is. There we also get the reveal that he is both an alamancer and a ferrochemist. All this explained his unnatural powers as this clicks in Vin's head and she's being pressed against on the outside. Mist flows into the building from the outside of the building, which we know is unnatural. Mist doesn't do that. It stays outside of buildings, even with open doors. And this is not something that normally occurs. And she's pulling and pulling and pulling and then draws on the mists in that single line of text as it's put on the page. It's just like a break line of she pulls in the mists and she's able to see these two new lines appear and yanks until his bracers on his upper arms yank free the ones that aren't pierced through the skin and are removed from the Lord Ruler. And he's made into this decaying mop of a man on the ground. Sad wet mop. Sad wet mop. Decaying mop of a man. What a description, man. <laughs> oh, that's that's so good. 
That's so good. So that reveal in general was, uh, it was interesting because it, my mind got going. My mind got going, man. Thinking about how possible it is for Vin to possess the same traits. And what it really got me thinking about was Vin's mother. And I think based on a few different contexts that I'll talk about, that she was a fair chemist. And it, it, like I said, it, it explains several things. One was this metal earring that she left Vin, which is probably one of her like ferrochemical focuses, or at the very least is something that Vin could use as a focus. She was able to convince the guards that were sent towards her to be lenient and let her live, which probably involves whatever the ferrochemical equivalent to soothing is. I don't know if you'd still call it soothing. It's not. So that, remember that all of ferrochemy is internal. All of it. You're only ever affecting yourself. Ah, okay. So just, just as a clarification. I mean, that pushes against my reasoning quite a bit because that was a big part of it. Like, how did she survive if she was able to? No, actually, what if she was both? I, I think that's what you're suggesting, aren't you? No, my what I was suggesting was that she got her allomancy through her father's pure bloodline. Right. And her ferrochemy oh, from so her, her mom mother. was also a full, yeah. Yeah, right. But if her mother had access to soothing as well and was maybe a limited dual, like, allomancy ferrochemist, I don't know. I don't know. There are thoughts. I didn't I didn't think about the fact that ferrochemy was entirely internal because a lot of this, like, thought process was based on the fact that she was able to survive. And my thought on that was that she was able to soothe the the guards that were sent to kill her. And like alter their thought processes. I don't know. Now I don't know as much. But I think at the very least, Vin received something ferrochemical genetically from her mother and had this insanely pure bloodline from her father that made her a mistborn as well. Okay. That's my thought. That's. If you want to make it an official prediction, that's my prediction. Oh, I'm making it an official prediction. We're going to keep <laughs> that until we resolve this question, and we will come back yeah. to it when it is resolved. So, I think that's what's so fun about this is that unlike unlike Red Rising and other books potentially, is that this is actually truly like some of these questions are series spanning in their own right. So it's it's fun in that way. Because when are you going to learn that information? When are you going to know? When, mm-hmm. Like, we haven't figured out. We, we posed the question, but we, we talked about it. When does Vin snap? You know, we don't know that yet. Yeah, we still don't know. Right. Because we haven't had any actual confirmation that she had her luck, as she called it at that point, with Reen, right? I believe so. I think we've been over this a couple of times, but yes. We have. Yeah. I, know, I know. I just want to make sure. I want to make sure no, yeah, because no I'm, not, I'm, I'm still of the you. opinion that Reen abandoning her, abandoning her is her snapping point, And I don't want to be like cut down at the knees right away because of something I missed from the first like chunk of this book. Yeah, you're clear. Okay. But this is the this is the end of the Lord Ruler, right? Like this is 
this is the end of Rashak, the Lord Ruler. And Vin, of course, is victorious over the Lord Ruler and poses the question to herself, why am I different? Why can I do things that he can? And this obviously ties into what you were just saying, but I want to ask you and bait this official prediction, What? why do you think she can do what she can? Well, I, I think I mentioned this above, like before, that her mother was a ferricmist and passed that down to her. So she similarly has the same unique trait of being both. Somewhere up the line, there was a terraceman that escaped the fate of most of the terracemen of either just absolute eradication or sterilization. So I think I, I think that's why that she's she's both and that doesn't really exist and or it it hasn't existed since the inception of the alimantic bloodline okay all right yep that's my guess it sounds good it sounds good there's this final moment that we exchange with the Lord Ruler, and I think it's a really wonderful one, and one that's been a thousand years coming in its own right, that Rashik has earned his awful end, dissolving like that wet mop on the floor. Just this, the, I guess, is he, is he wet? He's more like a dried mop, as we think about it, because his skin is wrinkling inwards and, and just kind of decaying in general. But before Vin kills him, he says something. You don't understand. You don't know what I do for mankind. I was your god. Even if you couldn't see it, by killing me, you have doomed yourselves. Well, fuck. (laughs) I'm assuming that the deepness or whatever it is, whatever, whatever the deepness is, wasn't actually defeated and was kept at bay to a certain extent. And constantly needs suppression. And that's what the Lord Ruler is doing constantly to not overtake humanity, which was the point. That was the the whole journey initially through the logbooks was to defeat the deepness because it was a threat to humanity. So if it wasn't defeated, but would just suppressed and had to constantly be kept at bay. That would explain this quote, I think. Okay. That's definitely a prediction. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, I think so. <laughs> Vin, of course, ends up killing the Lord Ruler with a spear, you know, in the same kind of way that ultimately Kelsier was killed. And it feels like this kind of full circle moment, especially with her final lines. I bring you a message from a friend of ours. He wanted you to know that he's not dead. He can't be killed. He is hope. And then she rams that spear right through his fucking heart. Yeah. It's poetic. It's very poetic. Here's a question. You didn't think that the Lord Ruler was going to die last week. I didn't. shocked by this turn? I was. Entirely. Very shocked. I don't think his influence is gone, though. Okay. We kind of get into that in the epilogue. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we do. But, yeah, I absolutely expected the Lord Ruler to be... Like a several books from now goal, as opposed to being ended here. That poses some big questions. It's going to be so exciting. So with that, we're going to go into the epilogue, our final chapter of this book, our final little section we're going to talk about. I think I'm glad that this is actually titled an epilogue because the story feels like it's 
this feels like if we're talking about like a mystery or a thriller novel, the detectives kind of going through and breaking down exactly what happened and how it happened and how it all worked. This mm-hmm. is that this is that digestif period at the end of a mystery, so to speak. Yeah. Which is kind of what this is. I mean, it's it's got that element of mystery and intrigue to it. So we lead off here, of course, with our final logbook entry from our hero of ages that never manifested. Oddly, on occasion, I sense a peacefulness within. You would think that after all I have seen, after all I have suffered, my soul would be a twisted jumble of stress, confusion, and melancholy. Often, it's just that. But then, there is peace. I feel it sometimes, as I do now, staring out over the frozen cliffs and glass mountains in the still of the morning, watching a sunrise so majestic that I know none shall ever be its match. If there are prophecies, if there is a hero of ages, then my mind whispers that there must be something directing my path. Something is watching. Something cares. These peaceful whispers tell me a truth I wish very much to believe. If I fail, another shall come to finish my work. So I think that last sentence is what's the most relevant to our story, but not I'm maybe not the most interesting to talk about, but... Addressing that part, I think we're led very clearly to believe that Vin now is the one to follow his footsteps and achieve what he couldn't in his failure. And that's assuming that there's something to be achieved as like assuming that the entire point wasn't just stolen from Rashik. Like, stolen from our hero. You mean the our boy. The guy who read the log stole stolen by Rashik. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So this, the idea of the hero of ages, our boy, the hero of ages. Yes. Isn't the hero of ages yet because that (laughs) prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. It's making that assumption. I'm making that assumption in that Vin will become the prophesized hero of ages because Whatever was done to steal the the title of the Lord Ruler was not fulfilling that prophecy. Okay. I don't know what implications that has. I don't know what that means. But I think that this is alluding to the idea that there is somebody that will come after this author. And that person is Vin. The context that we get definitely leans us into believing that Rashek stole this from our boy, the hero of ages, the potential hero of ages, I guess. And the, the context that we're left with from this section is, I I think innumerable. There are a couple of different notes here to kind of talk about. One is the obvious, the direct comparison to, to Vin as you're making mention of, and sort of the, the idea that the prophecy goes on past this this is sort of again it's the epilogue so this is teasing the next thing kind of and also wrapping up the story at the same time so this feels like a teaser for the future story as it were to unfold potentially so the other- i'd like to i'd like to get your input going off of that mm-hmm. is an epilogue technically should it be read with the same weight as other chapters in a story i think it should be read with a different weight i think it's generally meant to be okay this is going to be something that is not going to make sense for people who haven't read the book. But think about us reading Recursion, right? The end of Recursion is that final moment in which he gets to meet up again 
right? It's that mm-hmm. it's kind of the circling. I don't want to, this feels like such an inappropriate metaphor, but like it's the circling of the drain in its own way. It's, it's meant to wrap up themes. It's meant to wrap up elements of the story. The warehouse even has a very similar kind of moment and element. Like we've, we've gotten kind of our resolution in a big way and we see our character either make a final decision or thematically come to terms with what happened in the story. So I think I often think of epilogues as nails in the coffin, but this is a nail that reaches through because we know it's a series. So like this is the rest of the content of the epilogue is mostly wrapping things up and explaining it in case you have any questions. So like it, it does a job of like answering questions and we'll, we'll definitely get into that in a minute. But this part is more thematically resonant, I think, than the rest of the epilogue, except for the very end with Ellen. Does that make sense? Does that yeah. kind of answer it? Like it's not it's not a regular chapter. It's meant to be the closing of the book. The it's not quite a coda because like a coda could be a different like that's a pause. It's a different moment, which sometimes comes instead of an epilogue in certain stories. But mm-hmm. yeah, epilogue feels specific. It's meant to be the exit of a story. You gotcha. could end before this in theory. Like you you don't have to read the epilogue, but you're missing context if you do. Yeah, I, I mean... That's the proposal of the epilogue from like a Shakespearean sense. Like the epilogue is not necessary to enjoy Macbeth. It is it is instead like a summation of Macbeth. Just thinking about the theoretical and like high school taught structure of a story. Mm-hmm. If we ended without the epilogue, it would end at climax essentially with no resolution. Like this is this is kind of fulfilling the resolution. This is in this case this story. is declining action. Yes. This yeah. is our declining action because there it, that is actually I think one of the craziest things about this book is that the declining action is 10 fucking pages, which is wild. Generally it's a little bit longer than that. Mm-hmm. Even recursion is like 20 pages. Like But he, like this entire section was 35 pages. Right. And we went from like we we learned so much about the entire story as a whole and killed the Lord Ruler, and learned about everything else. <laughs> yeah, like, right. The entire... This is the Sanderlanch. This is the Sanderlanch. This is less than... What would you call this? Less than... like This is like 5% like of the story. Yeah. And it's... It, there's so much that happens here. Right. So. Yep. I don't disagree. Yep. I think that it is it is a choice that Sanderson makes. And it's it's an authorial choice, but I think in general you can look at as an at an epilogue as a summation and thematical remuneration of what the story is going for. Right. So in theory, you can excise it and people should be able to take away what's existing inside of the epilogue. In the case of mysteries and stuff like that, sometimes it's used for additional exposition just to clarify things in case things were wonky. But that's that's mm-hmm. how I think about epilogues. I'm pro epilogue. I am I am wishy washy on prologues. So to that point, though, I just want to reiterate that this initial logbook entry, or this final logbook entry, I should say, from the Lord Ruler, not the Lord Ruler, Jesus Christ, from our boy, the Hero of Ages, or the potential Hero of Ages, he is also talking about how beautiful the world is. And he's giving this kind of this other philosophical component i i think here to the the story this flourish this idea of like this beautiful end of things and the way that like how important saving the world is and how that turns everything around in a big way and the sort of moment of peace and belief 
I think permeates this in the prophecy and himself and other things. And I, I think that it's comforting to know, despite the hero of ages never reaching the well, as far as we're aware, and Rashik taking that power, that I think he would have been a better steward of power than he was ever given credit for, and that he would have done the right thing in context. And that's a tough that's a tough thing to grasp. Like our farm boy hero, our Luke Skywalker, was stopped at the eleventh hour from doing the right thing. Yeah. God, calling him Luke Skywalker is a trip. W- what do I make of that, man? I I think I just there's so much I want out of this character. And now hypothetically everything is lost. I don't think that's true. I think there will be a journal that we find from Rashik that will be supplemental to this logbook that we have. Call that a prediction if you want. I think that'll exist. And I think we'll get that. Because I I think there's going to be so much that could be learned even from a ferrochemical standpoint about what's possible. And from a historical standpoint of what happened that could be gained from this, from something like that existing. And it would make a very easy way of disseminating that information without breaking any sort of mold because we already have the expectation that these logbooks exist. So next book, getting logbook entries from Rashik parallel to these logbooks. I think would both make sense, would be satisfying, and would give us context that we need going forward. Hmm. Interesting. Fucking hate that I said that there. I am so glad <laughs> that you have that you have that that theory and idea going into the next book. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna discuss it further, but I I like what you're positing and where your brain is going because I think that it it speaks to what Brandon has encouraged throughout this novel, right? Like that is entirely what he's what he's leaning into is he's really leading you to speculate like he is Mm -hmm. with a very wide brush leading you to believe everything has its place everything has a rule i've got it all planned and so i'm leaving you with these questions and now deal with it (laughs) (laughs) fucking deal with it yeah exactly We've only got a couple of things left to talk about with this book, but I think one of the big things here is the end of the book really covers four different topics here as we've kind of flirted around this time. Ellen establishing Ellen's establishing of the government being the new kind of king inquisitors and their powers, Condra and how they operate, as well as a detailed explanation of the compounding effects of ferrochemist or ferrochemical abilities and alimantic abilities, as well as some theories therein. I want to leave this kind of this end kind of free form for you. Which ones do you want to tackle first and what do you want to talk about? Of course, I'm not going to reveal anything, but we can discuss them kind of openly. Yeah, I think we just kind of go in order of how they're revealed within the book. Sure. So starting with the Alamancy and Farrakami and their sort of interactions, I appreciate very much that even after the story culminates, we get this detailed explanation of the physics behind Alamancy and Farrakami and how they interact with each other. Like mm-hmm. it makes for a really exciting speculation going forward, but it also just satisfies my need for rules. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. 
it's not necessary. And I think that what that's why it makes sense to live within an epilogue because that part isn't necessary to know, but we get a breakdown in a very scientific way. So I don't know, makes for something really exciting going forward there. Anything I'm going to leave you sort of a spot here after each section to go forward. Pause anything yeah. you want to, you know, I, I think that you're right. And I think that that's what's so fun about this is this reiterates the rules. Just to clarify them in case anything was confusing about what just happened. Let's say you got through the end and didn't understand outside of maybe like the mists thing or whatever the fuck happened there. You get an understanding of Alamancy. You get an understanding of Farrakimi just to make sure that you understood what happened. So if you didn't, you could read this and then go back and be like, oh, OK, I see exactly how that worked. There's a great meta tool as well as, you know, just general explainer mm-hmm. exposing the mystery. Yeah. Both similarly and in contrast to that, we get information on the Inquisitors. And they're like I said, they're still kind of shadowed a little bit in mystery. But we know that there are now 11 spikes, not just the two in the eyes and the one in the back. And removing one allows them all to kind of fall. So 11's a curious number, isn't it? It is. Eight in the chest is weird. Hmm. I feel like those are numbers that we recognize. 11. Where does 11 come in? I don't know. Think about it for a second. Metals, number of metals. But... We also posit that there's more than that. We just yeah. we know about ten. We we posit about the we know the existence of eleven, but there's a twelfth that's theorized by Vin, right? And there's ferrochemical metals that mm-hmm. the Lord Ruler clearly utilizes that aren't understood, like making him younger. Like that's that's something that Sazed can't do. It's not that he can't do it. It's that he doesn't think that it's useful. He says that in this end. Like that, like, because ultimately the end goal here. So this is something that's clarified. So the Elemancy Ferrochemy bit is he says that ultimately it isn't useful because you're storing your youth to expend later to look younger. So that doesn't benefit you in the long run unless you're able to compound it with a different metal. So because he's an Alamancer and a ferrochemist, he can use two metals in conjunction to give him the appearance of age without actually and in the storage of age to create a cycle for him in which he can actually compound it and make it more. So if he stores a year because he is also an Alamancer, he can expend it and make it more than in a rudimentary explanation. I'm not going to go into the super big details, but that's effectively what's being said. So. I'm definitely yeah. talking about the number number of metals here. I'm just going to I'm just going to fucking feed mm-hmm. you what I'm talking about because that is curious just, that we I, know 11 metals and there are 11 spikes. There is yeah. We theorize other things, but we know that there are 11. I feel like if each spike was a different metal, we would there there would be comment on the fact that each spike in the eyes were different. That's true. Yeah. And I feel like they're both referred to as like iron essentially but Mm -hmm. iron and steel clearly like understandably are like steel is an alloy of iron and maybe could look as as closely similar to each other as possible and could be um 
could be placed side by side and still be seen as the same metal. I don't know. It's a lot to think about. I just feel like if they were different, we would we would have been the difference would have been would have been remarked on. I don't know. But yeah, 11 is interesting. We are on to Chondra, I believe. Something that gets revealed here is that Chondra require not only the bones of the deceased, which we knew about, but also the fact that they have to eat the flesh of whoever they're imitating. And I think what makes that really interesting and important is that it implies they can't imitate somebody who's died more than a certain amount of time ago. Like it, it creates an hourglass of how long it takes or how long somebody could be dead before they could be no longer intimidated, you know? Yes. Yeah. It creates parameters um, around what a chondra can and cannot mm-hmm. do. Again, it, this kind of restricts it saying that they have to eat the flesh and the bones in order to become the person. And yeah, we kind of made I, jokes I, about bones. <laughs> before. We so did. Was, we did. Yeah. We knew, we knew it was the bones mm-hmm. for sure. But this preemptively creates rules for who and why they can intimidate not intimidate impersonate intimate people yeah so i don't know again depth of rule sets and my appreciation for that so i'm happy with that beyond that we don't get anything more about Condra. as far as the obligators go and their connection to Elend and Elend's rule as king. I think using the obligators as a tool makes sense. And it makes sense from both directions in that the obligators as who says it, I can't remember. I don't think it was Sazed. See Elend as somebody who could be easily manipulated. Who who was that? Do you remember that comment? I think... Wasn't it Doxon? It might have been Doxon. It might have been Doxon. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. So it makes sense that they would join to be like, could have been Marsh. They would, they would fall in line because he's easily manipulated and they could get what they want out of that. But at at the same time, It'd be folly. Marsh also for, said that he was enclosed in charge of the steel ministry now because he's the last inquisitor. So on top of that, he was just granted authority over them. Right. So I think that's where Marsh comes back and retorts to whomever says that. It's like, no, like I'm in charge of them indirectly mm-hmm. as a vestige of the Lord Ruler's power. Yeah, but ignoring that idea and yeah. that conflict and the the possibility of double crossing or actually kind of leaning into the idea of double crossing, not bringing the obligators into the fold, knowing that they're trained bureaucrats and like really good at what they do would pose a threat to whoever takes charge to Ellen's for being overthrown by a group of very well trained bureaucrats. So a couple different directions where the uh rationalization could come from cool all right yeah anything else in the group i i love those reads i I really enjoy them and i think that it's you know that's basically how they're how they should be read there's not a whole lot to like predict out of these because these are meant to kind of be it's pretty clear story at large yeah the whole the whole epilogue is pretty clear 
yeah. pretty without things to read into for the most part. So, yeah, cool. That's what I've got. With that, we move into the formal end of the book, right? So the beginning of of Vin's perspective, kind of in, in that first chapter, we hear this whisper of Reen, her half-brother in the back of her head. And here in the book, we also lead into our ending with a very similar whisper of they'll all abandon you in the end, in the beginning, and now it's go back, go back and be with Ellen. And I think that's so interesting because it, it portrays that change in Vin and the change of the way that maybe she can read some of the the trauma that's been inflicted on her and how she can kind of shift her own internal dialogue with herself or how she has shifted it over the course of the book to go back and be with Ellen and have this happy moment in her life with her friends and with Ellen. Yeah. I I mean, I think it goes beyond friends. Well, I'm not saying I'm not saying that Ellen and her are friends. Yeah. I'm trying to say with the other people. They're obviously right. okay. in their own relationship. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Clarification. But I loved like this whole thing is so fucking cute, man. Yeah. <laughs> like the way she accosts him at the end of this mm-hmm. story and like She's tearing up and clearly like she's feeling more than what she's about to say, but parroting something that was mentioned earlier when she first met him was you read too much, especially in the presence of ladies. Yeah. Right. I, I, it's very close to that. I know it's not explicitly exactly that quote, but it's pretty much it. Yeah. It's pretty close. You actually this is, put it exactly. You read too much, especially I? in the presence of ladies. Yeah, that's literally what it is. All right, perfect. Awesome. Good work. Um, is this the first, eh, maybe it's not the right way to call it, but it's very much the feeling of a happy ending that we've had on this show as far as books go? Like, there, there's... Yeah, pretty much. Like, this is the only, like, positive, like, fully positive re- resolution, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean there there are few there are few and far between the moments yeah. that we've had so far. So this is this It felt is a good. good one. It felt it really felt good. good. All right. That's the end of the book, PJ. End of the fucking book, man. Any other thoughts? My thought is that in more than a week we we record like the ending, like the finale of this book. Like we we always have a guest come on and talk about the book. Next week, we've got Lindsay doing that with us, who tomorrow you're recording another <laughs> podcast with her. She gets two um, episodes in a week. Yeah. Which I'm excited to listen to. Yeah. Frankly. But that means that for a week, I have nothing to read because I don't want to spoil myself and like read into the next book before the wrap up. Mm-hmm. So any suggestions on what I can read in the next week? Going you should forward? read Gideon the Ninth, maybe. Okay. For a, for a fun little a little thing that maybe we'll talk about in a bit. That might be. I, I, we're not going to talk about it today, but maybe soon. Maybe soon. We'll maybe talk about maybe it. soon we'll talk about maybe that. Soon. Interesting. Yeah, could be. I fun. can do that. Yeah. With that, we're going to move into PJ's prediction. So we're moving this onto the end of the episode, and I think this might be how we do it going forward, depending on how it feels. But as opposed to kind of doing it on the front end, wherein we kind of spoil shit that we're going to talk about, let's talk about it at the end, and we can kind of summate our feelings and take our drinks and sacrifice ourselves to the gods right at the end of the show. So, <laughs> yeah. With that, we have the first one here read, which you said, 
or I, I pose the question, Sezid also talks about Rashik, the leader of the Lord Rulers Pac-Man, and of the terrorist religion of which is mentioned being completely removed from the face of the earth, destroyed by the Lord Ruler and his actions. Why do you think the Lord Ruler would want to bury the terrorist religion that had propped him up in the first place? This is a really, I don't care about your answer yet, this is a really interesting question, because the assumption here also states that the Lord Ruler is the guy in the logbook, right? So this question right. is backframed from the perspective of whoever's what we're told being the lord ruler yeah yeah right. what we're explicitly like, well, explained yeah so i yeah your answer if there's any slight any dishonesty that got him to where he is now they'll remember and the possibility of his secrets getting out could be his entire undoing so it's that end phrase is why I latched into this being correct for you. However, for the wrong fucking reasons, like you, you nailed in to why the Lord ruler in the present is doing what he's doing. You didn't do it based on the logbook. So I, I'm giving it to you because you nailed the present context. Mm, not can we both drink? Because we both drink. Like, that's fine. It, it's, I'll take that. That's fine. That is not where i was coming from like but, i stumbled but into you, the right answer when you but, fucking said it i went oh <laughs> oh shit he's got it um, yeah i mean the wrong yes reasons, you know? i'm right but that's not where i was coming from so yeah. okay i'll drink but you're drinking too cheers all right cheers. here's a random prediction that you made in an episode you said vin is some wild alternate timeline version of the lord ruler using gold and that's so incorrect. <laughs> so wildly incorrect. That could have been so cool, right. though. It could have been. It could have been really that cool. That could have been, been like such Looper. a cool <laughs> thing. It would have been Looper the book. And you know how much I love Looper. So, yeah, I feel yeah. I feel you didn't right, mention so, Looper with Rob Hart, by the way. I thought you would have. I fucking didn't. I can't believe that I didn't. I was actually going to talk about it that and uh, I was going to mention that you loved it when we when he was talking about like time trap like tom loop time loop stories so and we I'm, i didn't because i thought you would <laughs> he and i actually had a conversation via the the form of the lit reactor class about looper so like it felt like it would have been odd rehashing that i don't know so inside of the class i had that conversation already so it felt felt weird but i didn't so <clears throat> but you're right i maybe should have brought it up because i could have i'm going mm-hmm. to literally we're already giving away my answer to this question anyway <laughs> this week's question so, and I didn't write it down. You're just pulling it out of me. So, we have a conversation about how foolish Ellen is for wearing metal versus wood and how the Lord Ruler wears metal and rings so as to encourage the nobility to do so as though some piece of art or a part of his plan. Seems like foreshadowing. This is the most direct I've ever been with a fucking question. And I said, what you thinking? I think it's absolutely part of his plan or at least allows for some oversight. Maybe he's able to sense metals to a very specific degree. True. And is able to know people's whereabouts through that. Kind of true. <laughs> I get that this is flagged as a prediction. So that's why I'm going with. So that's what I'm going with, but not fully convinced of it myself. I am going to call this a push because I think you're wrong. Actually, I'm going to yeah. go ahead and say, I think, you're I think wrong I'm wrong. I think I'm wrong. It was really the Farrakhani that he was hiding. Like that's what he was hiding here. That, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't that he like, I don't think he was encouraging people to wear jewelry in general. I think that was just what people do when they worship someone is emulate them. Oh, I think he was directly encouraging it through his own lavish appearance, right? So they are worshiping him for that, but it is it is a way of disguising his Farrakhemi. Yeah. Okay. And making it seem commonplace. I can feel that. 
Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. So next question. Technically find out a little bit later that this is the end of the logbook. Kaput, no moss. Given what we know, where's your head at with this? I think Sazed is right. I keep fucking with the way I say it. Either way is fine. I think Sazed makes more sense. So I think Sazed is right, more or less, that since he's now immortal, what he does... Uh, what need does he have to write things down for himself? I would be surprised if he doesn't have a perfect memory now. Yeah, that was entirely going on the assumption that the person writing was also the Lord Ruler. And we know now that that's not true. So I'm drinking for that. Definitely true. Definitely something that you were taking a drink for. All right. So here is another one here. Marsh's note details an interesting question. Where does the power difference of an Inquisitor come from? Why are they so much stronger than traditional Alamancers? And how do they recruit the Mistborns into the agency? So your answer is a little bit separate. I just want to clarify. We know that they aren't Mistborns that are recruited. There is a misting in this case. Yeah. And he displays additional Alamantic powers. Correct. And I think they're made, not found, was my answer to that. Which Which is is entirely true. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that was a stretch, though. I feel like we knew that. There were so many heavy implications. Of, yes, we we addressed this one literally at the beginning of next week or of last week, being like, we want to address this because it's not clear. Now it's perfectly fucking crystal clear. I knew what I was right. getting into. Yeah. <laughs> so next one, the next day, Vin and Sazed share a conversation about the eleventh medal and its potential, and how the keepers have heard no mention of it. This poses a question: Where did Kelsier hear of the eleventh medal? How does he know its use? Do you have any ideas? Well, we don't know its use, as far as we. As far as how he knows about it, I'd be curious if this is the result of burning gold. Maybe he's got, maybe he got into conversations with his alternate self. He mentioned that he doesn't think gold is really useful, but maybe he's hiding that for some reason. That's entirely false and kind of incoherent in like re approach. Yeah. So that's, that's a drink for you. So understandable there. We also have. The we're also going to go into the 11th metal short story at the end of this to kind of discuss a little bit there because there's a short story. We're not going to read it. We could, in theory, read it this week, but we're not going to or next mm-hmm. week. But yeah, we're going to touch that at the end of this. With that, we go into the final prediction here. She breaks into the room and finds it odd, homey, strange, filled with old things, yellow paintings, and an old man in a chair who spins to see Vin as she explores the room. This, of course, is the Lord Ruler. Out of options, she burns the 11th medal and two different figures appear, one of a happy burly man in large furs, Rashik, and the other a smaller mercantile-looking man. What's going on in your head right now about that? So, all right, I'll, I'll read what I said, and then I've got something to talk about. All right, what I said was David Lopan, that David Lopan, which is very clearly explicitly a reference to Big Trouble in Little China, which if you haven't seen Big Trouble in Little China, please go watch it. It is one of my favorite movies of all time. We have a PJ Symposium of Media and Whimsy episode about that. Here here I'm plugging that, which I think coming to your ears soon. Yeah, we're going to be releasing that to the public because up until now, that has been a Patreon exclusive show. But 
publicly release that. Anyway, I think there's something more to gold, like we've talked about, but there's also something similar about the 11th metal, like Vin mentions here. Maybe there's, maybe it's internal and external following the other metals, the other metals patterns. And the gold being internal means that she, there's inspection of an alternate future and the 11th metal is more of an external source that source yeah yeah external tangible source that external thing that has tangibility to it i think is the right way to put that no so i'm saying it's eh, not quite like it's not yeah. quite true i was I give you credit though for working the around it i was close the low plan low plan the low pan comparison i don't think quite makes it because they're not both in existence at the same time yeah you know like he just can kind of switch between avatars to a certain extent Um, yeah he's physically aging his body up and down in the case of lord ruler right going back to it there's the oh the merchant the merchant guy that shows up that's standing next to one of the inquisitors correct yes sorry you're right yes yeah so it's it's the appearance of of an inquisitor there right so are we to believe that everybody has an alternate visage or is it only specific people do you think that that could be the visage of who the inquisitor was before he became an inquisitor that's dependent on how an inquisitor is made we kind of got the explanation of how an Inquisitor is made. Kind of. Not really, though. We know that there are several corpses that come into play, mm-hmm. and it's something really unpleasant. But Marsh, Marsh looks like Marsh. So, like, it's not as though his form changed. I think it's safe to assume that the image in the 11th medal for now is an appearance of the person as they sh- could have been or should or were. That's that's the hard part to, like, read on this whole thing is, like, what... Where in, where in their timeline are we looking with the 11th medal based on the like information much, right now? Much like snapping, there is a point where something major happens and that's the point where the 11th medal visage evolves from, maybe? Yeah, potentially. It's like identity in a way. Yeah. I guess not evolves from, is. I think it'd have to be is. Because the uh, like the the person that's depicted by the Lord Ruler and Vin seeing them through the eleventh medal is a young person, not a thousand year old creature that somehow can still exist. Yeah, it's a younger version of the same person. So it, it's the, a lot gold, but external. Like that's basically what it is. The visage of whoever they were before that snapping quote unquote point happens. Maybe not to the same like reasoning behind snapping, but like a defining point in somebody's life. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. I think we're going to push on that one is basically the the sort of sensibility for me because it's neither. We're addressing neither. So no need to. We're just going to push with that. Mm -hmm. We move into question of the week. PJ, do you want to take the first one here? Our question Are we going to do ours first? No, let's read theirs and then we'll do ours at the end. 
Our question of the week this week is your favorite martyrs or sacrifice for the sake of a story. I think we might have done something very similar to this earlier, but this is this is more intense, extreme, direct. Yeah. So Tim Pearson, Tony in Endgame was heavy. The Logan sacrifice is up there. The T-800 in T-2. Also Kyle Reese in T-1. Ken in in Bruges. In Bruges. In Bruges. In Bruges. Good movie. In Bruges. Yeah. In Bruges. In Bruges. That was five answers. Tim, uh, tighten up. Tighten up. We love your answers, though. They're They're all right. They're all good. I think especially all of those hearken to same kind of shit that we like yeah so. for sure <laughs> <You know? laughs> next up is shark bait okay so mine is and and again i should say fucking i should have put the spoiler warning at the very top i might go back and edit it in we are going to be spoiling things for this next section so maybe skip a minute or two after this to to hear what we're talking about if you would like to avoid spoilers some are going to be book some are going to be otherwise so yep so from malazan book of the fallen it's definitely the bridge burners, which is a little niche, but and it's it's a 10 book series and it's it is notably people have said that it's a very difficult series to get through, but it's worth it in the end kind of a thing. Have not touched it yet. It is definitely on my TBR radar. They're my forever fave for the gallows gallows humor. First in last out gritty Marine Corps trope quite like that. So, yeah, right from Timmy Tam 13. You sure it's not Timmy Tam B? It could be B. One three is kind of a B, right? Timmy Tamb. Yep. yep. I don't know. There's a very, very good Mitch Hedberg joke around that that I want to quote, but yeah, I'm not going to do it justice yeah. right now. Timmy Tam 13 is how it's written, but pretty sure I cried when Dobby sacrifices himself in Deathly Hollows. I don't know if it's my favorite example, but for some reason it really hit home. PJ just became informed that Dobby dies in Harry Potter. <laughs> yep (laughs) oh man oh man that's hysterical because of your experience with harry potter that's great great answer i I think it's more than reasonable so summit in answer here minor from faithful in the fallen by john gwynn both gar and mcquinn and won't spoil anything by saying anything more so Mm. it's a reasonable answer love it yeah artificer from our discord best martyr is eo Without her, we do not have the Red Rising series. And that's pretty true. That's pretty true. EO is like the the source of that entire fucking story. The impetus for it all. So, yeah, agreed. From Marcus, we have Bruce Willis's character in Armageddon sacrificing himself so his daughter and son-in-law could survive and five years later make the movie Jersey Girl. Maybe he shouldn't have sacrificed himself. (laughs) That was all, by the way, written by Marcus. That's a hysterical punchline. I love it. I hope I did it justice. Another castle from our Discord and our good friend Adam. George in Halo Reach, which, good answer. I need to go back and replay all of the halo series i i've been meaning to go back and like play it front to back god we talked so. about it with heart again we're talking about that interview a lot here but like we talked about it with rob heart and i got like the tingly feelings of like ah oh, fuck yeah. i should go back and play halo exactly uh, which was a good time so uh um, pj what's yours? yours oh all right i'll fuck go with you. mine go. gandalf the gray going and uh sacrificing himself to the balrog so the fellowship can escape Clearly, like, obviously, he doesn't perish, 
or Gandalf the Grey perishes, but is uh, reincarnated as Gandalf the White. Okay. But I think that is, I don't know, I think that fits, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. What about you? That's a good answer. Uh, I'm not, I, I have a different pick, but I'm not going to expose it because it exposes one of my favorite moments in a series that we will eventually read to some capacity. Do you want Uh, me to take off my headphones? No, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not even going to put it in here because people who also haven't read it, I don't want to spoil it for them. However, I will instead talk about my favorite movie, which is Looper of which ends with a moment of sacrifice, a martyr to close the loop on a very different story that created a gangster villain that caused the entire story in front of us. And I think that that is a, it is the climax and sacrifice that solves a time loop problem that will eventually exist based on a dead mother. And I think that it is just so well done and so well written that the whole story is paid off in that singular moment in which Joseph Gordon Levitt's character flips around the shotgun and takes himself out to kill his future self who will cause nearly the apocalypse such a good movie (laughs) it's so fucking good yeah so that's it for uh this week's question for next week we aren't exactly going to have a regular question we might address this kind of at the end of the episode or in something bonus but we'd like to know what you think about mistborn the final empire send us in your thoughts on this first book and kind of your your feelings if we get enough, we'll, we'll chat about it. Otherwise, maybe we won't. But we'd love to know. We'll address this in some capacity come either the next episode or the episode after that. So with that, next week is our wrap up with our dear friend, Lindsay Lundeen. Lindsay has a fresh perspective that I'm really excited to bring onto the show. You guys asked for us to bring another one of our friends on. So here we are bringing a friend on who is also an incredibly well-read reader, brilliant person, soon to be lawyer. Incredible, incredible person to have on the show absolutely i'm super like i'm super excited for this really looking forward to it it's always a fun time talking to Lindsay about anything so yeah yeah. to pj's point too earlier she is kind of dominating our show next week (laughs) so she is (laughs) also on the romance council episode that we're going to be putting out on february 14th on valentine's day so she is a big part of that panel and will likely be I guess I recorded tomorrow, so I can't really speak to the future, but is going to be kind of my co-host replacing you, PJ, for that episode. I'm going to be kind of co-chairing it. I'm going to kick it off. Replacing me. Replacing temporary filling the seat. You you understand what I mean. I do. That's that's kind of the game plan. So, yeah. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as every week, to Tim and Andrew for helping us keep our show's lights on. Check out all of our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, our websites, all of our socials, all in one very convenient location. Yeah, and we also want to take a second today to thank our new patrons, Bartender Windpunner on Instagram. Make sure that you follow Windpunner on Instagram. Fantastic Cosmere puns abound and memes and hysterical. Highly recommended if you're kind of absorbed into the same space as we are currently. But Thank you, Wind Punter, for being our new barback, or excuse me, our new bartender, and as well to our new barback, Tim Andrews. Thanks a million for supporting the show, friends. I said Tim Andrews. Timmy Tam B, or 13. I'm going to add that back. Timmy Tam B. (laughs) Tim, that's why Um, I decided to use your name that way, by the way, in case you're wondering about that direct (laughs) message last night. So thank you for clarifying and letting me make this joke. (laughs) If you are looking for our social media accounts. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at words, whiskey pod. That's whiskey with an E. 
And if you'd like to email us, we are wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. And if you'd like to join our Patreon, that is patreon.com slash wordsandwhiskey. Yeah, we do a devil's cut of each episode, which is the little bonus segment that we tag onto the front discussing a kind of question of the week, an icebreaker that's submitted by our patrons. That's at the the entry level tier and beyond that we have additional show bonuses and live shows and even you can sponsor an episode of our podcast now, which is yeah. friggin wild. Super Very fun. excited for I'm excited for the first person who pulls that trigger. Like I want to know what they want us to talk about. You know, right. like I'm Me too. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious. Cool. All right. With that, we'll see you next week with Lindsay Lindine. Great. That'll be fun. <laughs>